Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Lauren. Welcome to episode 5 of the Out of Time podcast. We hope you enjoyed our story swap last week. We might do another one on a different topic very soon. Today's episode is probably going to be another long one, so I think we should just jump straight into it. 20 years before Jamestown, a small colony was founded on an island off the eastern coast of North America. The plan was for this to be the first permanent English settlement in the New World. But when Governor John White returned from a supply trip in 1590, all the settlers had disappeared. Few clues were left, and to this day, historians and archaeologists are still trying to piece them together. We are, of course, referring to the mystery of the missing Roanoke colony. It's not something that we were very familiar with until I watched a YouTube video on it last year, and it's really stuck in both our minds ever since. Um, I know that this is spoken about in America, like they are taught about it, but we're not here. And I find it really strange that we don't learn more about this sort of thing at school. Not Roanoke specifically, but the colonisation that took place in many areas of the world is barely even touched on. Probably because the truth of it is that the English are very much the villains of history. And it seems like that conversation isn't really one that takes place in classrooms here in England, which it really should. I definitely think so, because I find it quite interesting. It's interesting, but it is a difficult conversation to have because, like I say, we were the ones in the wrong. And I think history is often, well, told from the point of the winner. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So they don't necessarily want to teach like secondary school children that we were responsible we were for this huge genocide of Native American people. And I know it was a long time ago, but we did learn some stuff about Native American culture in secondary school. Do you remember that? Very, very little. Yeah, it was. I think it was like one term. It was our history topic. Um, but I found it really interesting. And looking back, I didn't realise just how much they avoided any sort of acknowledgement of the colonisers' role in the total destruction of their lands and how brutally they were oppressed and displaced. It's disgusting. I can't believe we left school 12 years ago. No. God, no. And I I hope things have changed. I don't know if it's still like that, but our eldest nephew is now in secondary school, so I might ask him what they study in history because I would like to think it's more inclusive now. While many people have heard of the Roanoke colony established in 1587, they weren't actually the first English settlement on the island. And while Roanoke in general is considered a failure, it was an important moment in history that would help shape the way the English would approach colonisation of North America in the following years. I think it's important to know a bit more about the years preceding the 1587 attempt before getting into the mystery of what happened, so we'll talk about that first. We'll start our story in England, at the court of Elizabeth I, with a man named Walter Raleigh. In 1578, Humphrey Gilbert, Raleigh's half-brother, had been granted a charter that gave him permission to explore and colonise territories that had not yet been claimed by Christian kingdoms. In the late 1500s, it was a race against time to establish an English claim to lands in the New World before the Spanish, who had already settled Florida, and that was exactly what Gilbert planned to do. But following his death in 1583, the charter would be divided between his brother, Adrian Gilbert, giving him the rights to Newfoundland and the lands to the north, whereas the lands to the south were given to Raleigh, despite much of it having already been settled by the Spanish. Because obviously, colonising Europeans didn't take into account that the lands they were handing out rights to, here, there and everywhere, had already been claimed, 
settled and lived on by the country's native population. But if Blackadder has taught us anything, it's that Queen Elizabeth was rather fond of Raleigh, and he was definitely a firm favourite in her court. Despite being granted this charter, Raleigh was not permitted to leave on the expeditions himself, so he had to run the missions from London. His charter specified that he had to establish an English colony by 1591, or he would lose his rights to colonisation of the territory. Now, colonisation isn't easy. It requires a lot of time, manpower and money, so Raleigh got to work quickly, and in 1584 he sponsored a reconnaissance mission. Captains Philip Armadus and Arthur Burlow were tasked with exploring the coast of modern-day North Carolina, noting what resources would be available in the region and selecting sites suitable for establishing a colony. They sailed from England on April 27th and arrived in America on July 13th. They were soon contacted by representatives of the Secatan tribe, who inhabited Roanoke Island, and some of the nearby mainland. Initially, relations were good. The Native Americans definitely would have had contact with other Europeans before this, most likely the Spanish. Some sources say that the chief of the Secatans, Wingina, was recovering from an injury, so his brother acted as the main representative. The English also met with the Croatoans, who lived on what is now called Hatteras Island, which is south of Roanoke. In autumn of that year, a group returned to England along with two Native Americans, Wanchis, a Secatan, and Manteo, whose mother was chieftain of the Croatoan island. They brought back samples of tobacco and potatoes, along with the reassurances that the region was fertile and they hadn't experienced any aggression or hostility from the native inhabitants. The success of this first voyage impressed Queen Elizabeth and earned Walter Raleigh a knighthood. In 1585, he was given the title Knight, Lord and Governor of Virginia. After gathering investment, Raleigh appointed his cousin, Sir Richard Grenville, as leader of a second voyage. Along with Grenville as fleet commander, Philip Armadus would serve as admiral. A fleet of seven ships carrying around 600 men sailed from Plymouth in April 1585 under the command of Grenville, who had actually been a naval commander. Raleigh had also invited Ralph Lane, a fellow member of Queen Elizabeth's court, who had previous military and maritime experience. He was to lead the military mission on land. Thomas Harriot, a scientist and mathematician, was also with them, tasked with creating navigational charts and maps of the area, collecting samples to test for mineral content and pharmaceutical use, and to learn the native language to enable better communications between the group and the Croatoans. During a severe storm off the coast of Portugal, the fleet was reduced from seven ships to five, and the Tiger became separated from the other ships. To be honest, this whole venture was just doomed from the start. Tensions ran high between Grenville and Lane, and the Tiger actually ran aground as it neared their destination. While it was repaired, a lot of the supplies it was carrying were ruined, including the food. Which is never good, is it? Never good. After sailing up the coast of North Carolina, the first ships arrived in June, and over the next few weeks the rest of the fleet also landed. Grenville and his men began exploring the coast, striking up relations with the Spanish and Native American settlers. Unfortunately, things would continue to go downhill, with Grenville accusing the residents of one Native American village of stealing a silver cup, and apparently he thought a reasonable reaction to this was to loot and burn the village. God... Given the shortage of food because of the tiger's mishap and the fact that they had arrived too late in the year to successfully plant and harvest crops, it was apparent very early on that there was no way the remaining supplies would be enough to sustain a military mission of over 600 men. 
Grenville soon set off for England to gather more men and supplies before returning the following April, leaving Lane and 107 men to begin establishing a colony at the north end of Roanoke Island. They began by building fort and soon made contact with local native population again. On paper, Lane's previous experiences probably made him seem like the ideal candidate for this mission, but a diplomat he was not. <laughs> it's often noted that the dwindling food supply was bolstered by the generosity of the local tribes, but it seems the English would often achieve this by force and extortion. Unsurprisingly, as the months passed, with no sign of Grenville's return, tensions continued to grow and the fort was subject to attacks. It all came to a head, if you'll excuse that turn of phrase, when one of Lane's men decapitated Winginer, who, as I mentioned earlier, was the chief of the Second Town tribe. Bad move. Yeah, I really don't think that's the direction you should take, you know, when trying to improve your diplomatic relationship. Not at all. And some sources do say that um, Wan Cheese, the Secretan who had travelled to England, later assisted in or even led some attacks on Roanoke. He viewed the English as his captors and the Native Americans' oppressors, rather than as friends like Manteo and the Croatoans reportedly did. But even if he hadn't have felt like that before, they literally murdered his chief, and that's pretty much as bad as betrayal gets. Fortunately for these colonists, a fleet led by Sir Francis Drake passed by Roanoke Island in June, returning from the West Indies where he'd been privateering against Spanish ships. Initially, Lane had planned for them to move the colony to the mainland at Chesapeake Bay, which he believed to be a far more favourable location. But there was a storm on the coast and Drake offered to just take Lane and his men back to England with him. And they accepted. I'm not surprised. Me neither. Ironically, not long after they left, the supply ship that had been sent by Raleigh arrived, followed by Grenville and his supplies a couple of weeks later. But obviously by then the colony was deserted, but Grenville did decide to leave 15 men there in an attempt to hold the English claim on the land. Which doesn't sound too good with the feud between the natives. Yeah, and what the... are 15 men supposed to do? Yeah. Upon his return to England, Lane assured Riley that while Roanoke Island may no longer be safe for a colony, the Chesapeake Bay area would be. And it also had deeper waters than those near the island, which would make it easier and safer to dock their ships. Another man who had been part of the 1585 expedition was John White, an artist whose watercolour paintings provided many English a first, if not always completely accurate, look at the New World. Around the time of these voyages sponsored by Raleigh, Europe had not long suffered a mini ice age, and obviously that had a major effect on their crops. So as well as being fascinated by what the native people looked like, Elizabethan courtiers also had a keen interest on what food sources were available. Therefore, a lot of White's work from this 1585 visit consists not only of portraits, but also images of edible seafood such as crab and catfish, as well as depictions of corn cultivation and local cooking methods. So he was keeping busy without antagonising the local population the way that Ralph Lane did. By this time, Riley's on a bit of a time crunch, because remember, he only has until 1591 to establish his settlement, so he's got five years left. John White was selected to lead the next colonisation attempt as governor. On the 8th of May, 1587, a fleet of three ships sailed from England, carrying 115 settlers. The group consisted mainly of middle-class men and women, but there were some farmers and, at this point, whole families, but there was no military force. 
The main reason people agreed to the voyage was the hope of bettering themselves economically. At this time, it was still thought that there may be reserves of precious metals ready and waiting to be claimed. A lot of the men who went alone planned to establish themselves and then send for their families to join them. Also present were John White's pregnant daughter Eleanor and her husband Ananias Dare. The plan was to land briefly at Roanoke Island to meet and pick up the 15 men left behind by Lane, before continuing to sail up the Outer Banks and finally disembark at Chesapeake Bay, which was the intended site for the new settlement. Not only had Lane advised that the water in the bay was deeper and more suitable for the ships to harbour, but obviously he had created a rather large problem at Roanoke by launching an attack and murdering Wingener, the chief of the Secretans. It was also a better base for privateering against the Spanish. And for anyone who doesn't know, privateering is basically legal piracy. Queen Elizabeth decided that she would allow the English to go out and be pirates as long as it was against the Spanish ships. So they would benefit off of that and halt their shipping because obviously a war is brewing. Yeah. And as we know, tensions were already running high after Lane's visit. And it's just a shot in the dark here, but the local people probably aren't going to be welcoming the English back to their island with open arms. I mean, we are referring to the English as colonisers, but let's not forget that the first step to colonising these lands was actually invasion, be it openly hostile or not. The territories had already been claimed and lived on by generations of Native Americans. Invasion is invasion. Exactly. When the flagship arrived at Roanoke in late July, White took 40 men ashore, only to find the fort in ruins, the small cottages empty and overgrown, and no sign of the 15 men, except for one skeleton. Creepy. Back on the boat, Captain Fernandez had decided he wanted to get back to making his money privateering and he refused to carry out the instructions to take the colonists up to Chesapeake Bay and when the third and final ship arrived, all the colonists disembarked at Roanoke. For reasons we've already discussed in the aftermath of Lane's colonisation attempt, they were already in a pretty precarious position and if the possibility of an attack wasn't enough for them to worry about, An accident during landing led to the loss and spoilage of a large portion of their food supply, similar to what happened in 1585. It seems to be a regular occurrence, doesn't it? Sort of losing food on the travel to Roanoke. Yeah, and they would often send enough food to sustain the colony for perhaps a year because they knew that they would arrive too late to plant and harvest their crops. So the idea was to give them enough food to get them through to the next spring where they could start growing the food themselves. Although it's far from ideal, everyone does get to work repairing the cottages and building more to accommodate the larger population, as well as fixing up the fort where they could. Not long after their initial landing, settler George Howe went out alone looking for crabs and was fatally shot by a Native American. White started to try and fix some of the damage that Lane's party had done to the diplomatic relations with the Native tribes, starting with the Croatoans on the neighbouring island helped, of course, by Manteo, the Croatone, who had visited England previously and returned with White's fate. His help was particularly important after White led what was meant to be a preemptive strike on a nearby Secatoan settlement after rumours reached him that they were gathering support for an attack on the colony. But the Secatoans had already left and the colonists ended up killing some Croatoan looters in the pre-dawn darkness. Right. So basically killing their own allies by accident. Yeah. 
Manteo actually went on to be baptised and given the title Lord of Roanoke, which obviously the colonists thought would be the start of a type of coalition and integration between themselves and the native population. Not really sure that title meant much, and I don't see how a group of new settlers can give that title to anyone, but I suppose that's just another example of colonisers' sense of entitlement. On the 18th of August, White's daughter Eleanor gave birth to a little girl christened Virginia Dare in honour of being the first English child born into the New World. But with food supplies running low, the colonists needed help, and they knew that Raleigh would be the man to provide it. It was decided that John White was their best hope to secure the financial help and supplies they desperately needed, and so, not ten days after the birth of his granddaughter, White and his ship's crew departed for England. There is some debate as to whether White was selected by the rest of the colony just because he was seen as a weak, not very good leader and because his other advisers and assistants would be left. It was sort of like, just he's no use here, just sort of get him out of the way. But little did they know that this would be the last contact they would ever have with the other colonists. It would be three years before White would return to Roanoke. After arriving in England that November... White was greeted with reports that the Spanish Armada had mobilised and Queen Elizabeth ordered that all shipping cease so that every vessel in England could be used to assist in the ensuing naval war. In 1588, White was able to set out with two small ships that weren't suitable for combat but they were attacked and looted by French pirates so they had to return to England. Although the Spanish Armada was defeated in August 1588. A counter-attack was planned for 1589, so the shipping ban wasn't lifted. Finally, in 1590, Riley was able to get permission for White to leave on a resupply attempt. As Roanoke Island came into view, White immediately knew that something was wrong. He saw plumes of smoke reaching into the sky from different points on the island. White and his men came ashore on August 18th, on what should have been his granddaughter Virginia's third birthday. Despite finding tracks in the sand of the beach, they were not greeted by any colonists as they would have hoped. Upon returning to the settlement, they found it looted and many of the houses dismantled or destroyed. The colonists' boats were also missing from the shoreline, but of course the most notable absence was that of the colonists themselves. Every man, woman and child was gone, as though they had disappeared into thin air. There was absolutely no trace of them. One would assume if they had been killed by disease or in a fight, there would be remains, at least skeletons lying where the colonists fell, but there was nothing. The only things left that could give White a clue as to the colony's whereabouts were two carvings. The first consisted of the letters C-R-O, which were carved into the trunk of a nearby tree. The second was the full word Croatoan. This was found on one of the wooden posts that formed a palisade around the settlement. This had been erected at some point in White's three-year absence. A palisade is basically a fence that in this case was made of thick wooden posts and it is a defensive structure. So it seems that at some point something happened that prompted the colonists to try and fortify the area. White was actually relieved when he found these carvings because neither of them featured a cross symbol, which was the agreed sign for the colonists to leave should they have to abandon the settlement in distress. White took the carvings in the missing boats to mean that the colony must have sailed south to Croatoan Island. He returned to the supply ship and made plans to head there himself the next day. Unfortunately, a storm hit, and in the midst of the worsening weather, the ship's anchor lines snapped and they were left drifting away from the islands. 
There was no option but to start the journey back to England, having never made it to Croatoan Island. John White would never return to America. He died not knowing the truth of what happened to the lost colonists, including his daughter and tiny granddaughter, Virginia Dare. Which are, that's really sad, isn't it? It is, but he died within three years of coming back to England, so even if he had planned to go back, it seems that perhaps Oof. he just didn't have time. Yeah. Raleigh did go on to visit Virginia a couple of times in the following year on the premise of searching for the lost colonists. But it seems like it was just a convenient way for him to try and maintain his right for the land. Technically, if there was no proof that the colony had died, he would have still established the settlement before 1591, the deadline stated in his charter, even if he couldn't actually locate them. That is a a tenuous grip that he's got there. In 1603, Raleigh did lose the right to the land of Virginia, after he was arrested on suspicion of treason against King James. That same year, Bartholomew Gilbert led the final expedition to search for the Roanoke colony. But after landing somewhere near Chesapeake Bay, most of the company were killed by Native Americans and the rest returned to England. The rumours of the lost colony never went away. And after Jamestown was established in 1607, John Smith... There's name everyone will recognise. Well, he wrote back to England, stating that he had been told by natives on the mainland that there were people who wore European-style clothing living in the area. Could they be the survivors of Roanoke? Unfortunately, nothing solid ever came of Smith's claims. In 1672, the inlet between Croatoan Island and the neighbouring Hatteras Island closed, creating what is now known as Hatteras Island. Writer and explorer John Lawson spent years around the North Carolina coast between 1701 and 1708, and there he visited Hatteras Island. When he met with the native inhabitants, he was told that some of their ancestors had been white, and he noted that some people he met had grey eyes, which would seem to support that there was an integration between the native population and European settlers. Lawson also noted that there seemed to be quite a large English influence on Hatteras Island and its people. That's interesting, isn't it? And this all led him to assert that the Roanoke colonists had travelled south to what was Croatoan Island, just as John White had assumed after finding the carvings, and that they had been taken in by the native tribe and just assimilated into the population. Lawson also visited Roanoke and confirmed that he found the remains of a fort, probably referring to the palisade structure that we spoke about earlier. But what are the other theories and what evidence is there to support each of them? Many believe that the colony actually split into two groups, one of them relocating to Chesapeake Bay and the rest awaiting White's return on Croatoan Island. Many reasons could be speculated as to why they left Roanoke, a lack of food supplies, even if bolstered by Native Americans' hospitality, possible threat from other tribes, failed crops, disease, even the environment and the weather on the island itself could have driven them to move on in search of a better or safer location. Then when White failed to make contact, both groups assimilated into the native populations in the areas. Tree ring analysis shows that there was a severe drought in the area between 1587 and 1589, with 1587 being the worst growing season in the 800-year span that was contained in the sample. Jeez. And although the Croatoans were known to share food with the Roanoke settlers, it's possible that the drought meant that they couldn't do that anymore and at least some of the colony would have had to have moved inland just to try and find food. Another theory is that they took the remaining ship and the other boats and attempted to return to England themselves, perhaps encountering a Spanish ship and being killed at sea. 
there have been archaeological discoveries made at two dig sites that may provide clues as to the fate of the Roanoke colonists. The site's located on Hatteras Island, 50 miles southeast of the Roanoke settlement, and another about 50 miles northwest on the mainland, have both yielded evidence that could support the theory that the colonists were simulated with Native Americans. It's difficult to accurately date a lot of the artefacts found by the dig team, such as pottery, and that is often pointed out by their peers. But the presence of glass beads, European iron, a writing slate and parts of a 16th century gun indicate a strong European presence in the areas, in contrast to a notable lack of such items on Roanoke Island itself. One of the most intriguing discoveries was made at the Hatteras site in 1998 by archaeologists from the East Carolina University. A 10 karat gold signet ring engraved with a prancing lion or horse believed to date back to the 16th century and thought to have almost certainly belonged to an English gentleman. But, similar to other artefacts discovered in the area, the ring was mixed in with items that only dated back to the 17th century, generations after Roanoke was abandoned. The leader of the dig, Mark Horton, believes the ring indicates that while the lost colonists integrated with the native population, they kept some of their belongings, including heirloom pieces such as gold rings. However, in 2017, X-ray analysis was carried out on the ring and revealed that it was in fact not gold, but brass. Obviously this means the value would be much lower, negating the argument that it belonged to a nobleman or other high-class gentleman. In light of this, it seems that the ring is actually quite innocuous, and could have been brought along with European settlers much later than Roanoke. The site on the mainland is known as Site X, and the excavations there are overseen by the First Colony Foundation. The site is, as we said, about 50 miles inland, on the Albemarle Sound. This location was selected after researchers found something interesting concealed in a watercolour map, painted by none other than John White himself. In 2012, the map was subjected to several imaging techniques, including X-ray spectroscopy, which revealed a tiny four-pointed star hidden underneath the patch. Obviously, watercolour maps took an incredible amount of time and skill to create, so if a mistake was made, the artist would add another piece of paper over that area to make their corrections. Throwing out the whole map and starting again just wasn't an option. When White had attempted to return to the colony, there was talk of a site inland, and knowing this, the researchers decided that this symbol could indicate a location that was considered as a settlement site by White's company. According to archaeologist Nicholas Lucchetti, the dig at Site X has unearthed several items that they are confident date back to the 16th century. These include food storage jars, gum flintlocks, metal hooks for tents and stretching hides, and an aglet. The aglet is particularly important because it's a small copper tube which was used before hook and eye fastenings, which weren't invented until the 17th century. So the presence of the aglet places the items at the dig site before then. Some of the most interesting things found by the group at Site X are shards of pottery in a border wave style, which is typical of that found at Roanoke and Jamestown. It wasn't imported after the Virginia Company was dissolved in the early 17th century, and the first recorded settlers in this area aren't until 1655. So it could be that this border wave pottery belonged to survivors from Roanoke who relocated to the mainland. That's interesting. As yet, there's no definitive answer as to precisely whether the settlers relocated or what prompted them to do so. While everything seems to point to the colonists leaving and assimilating, we are still waiting for concrete evidence. 
But could the answer as to exactly what happened at Roanoke already have been provided by none other than John White's daughter, Eleanor Dare? In late 1937, a tourist approached the history department of Emory University, asking for help to decipher some markings on a £21 chunk of quartz he claimed to have found near the border of Virginia and North Carolina. After examination by a team at the university, the markings were deciphered, and to the shock of everybody, they found a heartbreaking message to John White from his daughter Eleanor. According to the carved message, not long after White left for England, the colony had moved to the mainland, and the next two years were full of only misery and war, with over half the settlers dying during this period. Remember, it was the original plan for the colony to be established in Chesapeake Bay, and White did briefly mention that they'd planned to relocate to the mainland at some point. The stone story continues to say that native shamans warned that the spirits were angry, and as a result the colony was attacked, with only seven of the English surviving. Among the slain were Eleanor's husband, Ananias, and their little daughter, Virginia. The stone reads, Ananias, Dare, and Virginia went unto heaven 1591. So if these stones are genuine, then it seems that at least some of the colonists survived on the mainland even after White's failed resupply attempt in 1590. Over the next four years, similar carved stones continued to be found and then sold to the university. But as time passed and more were discovered, the authenticity of all the stones, including the original, was called into question. Several of them had been discovered by a stonecutter from Georgia and a newspaper article accused him of being a fake. In 2016, the first stone was taken to the University of North Carolina for analysis, and after the stone was cut into, it was found that its interior was bright white, a stark contrast to its dark grey exterior and carvings. Matthew Champion of the Norfolk Medieval Graffiti Survey, which I didn't know exists here in the UK, but that seems pretty cool. It does seem pretty Medieval cool. graffiti. He explains that the carvings when they're first made, would appear as bright white on the stone and that it would take a great deal of time for the whiteness to fade. So if it was a fake, how did the forger disguise the fresh cut's distinctly white appearance? Champion also stated that disguising this colour with chemicals would have been difficult, especially in the 1930s when the stone was first discovered. Analysis of the language used in the note and physical properties of the stone in its ageing process continued to divide experts. Some believe this one at least to be the genuine article solving the 400-year-old mystery of what happened to the lost colony of Roanoke. Other experts believe it's a remarkable forgery. It's hoped that a multidisciplinary study will be carried out at some point in the near future to determine the stone's validity once and for all. There have also been attempts to carry out DNA testing with a view to determining genealogy and seeing if there are any descendants of the colony alive today. But of course, it's very complicated and difficult because they don't have a full original DNA source such as a skeleton that can 100% be confirmed to belong to one of the colonists. If there were any buried near the original Roanoke settlement, it's likely that due to the severe coastal erosion in that area, the remains would now have been claimed by the sea. Roanoke is a real enigma that has both historians and the public fascinated and baffled in equal measure. While we continue to unearth clues, I have no doubt that Roanoke has many more secrets left to reveal. Maybe one of them will provide the ultimate answer as to the lost colonists' fate. Even after 400 years, it seems we'll still just have to keep waiting. So Matt, what do you think? Well, it seems to me that it was definitely clear that the colonists split in two. That objects were found both north and south of Roanoke. Mm. Um, so that definitely tells me that 
def they definitely split at some point. Um, but what happened to them at that point, very unclear. I mean, there seems to be a lot of evidence that they did assimilate into native tribes. Mm. But what I find intriguing is settlers are notorious for spreading disease wherever they go, especially Europeans with things like influenza. And I do wonder if at least some of them perhaps died from a disease and perhaps they were, instead of burying them, which, as we said, even if they were, the remains would now be in the sea because of the erosion, maybe they were burying them at sea. Maybe they were rowing out far enough to dump the bodies into the deeper water in an attempt to control the disease spread. Maybe, yeah. But I do agree that it seems that at least some of them did relocate to the mainland, but who knows? Will we ever know? (laughs) It's hard to tell, isn't it? It is. I mean, I'm definitely going to keep an eye on it because there is a whole project dedicated to the DNA analysis. So it could be interesting if if they find descendants that are direct descendants, then we have our answer that at least some of them did survive. Yeah. I think that's everything for today. So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, follow us on Spotify. And if you want to do us a huge favour, leave us a rating and a nice review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate the feedback. And if you have any suggestions of topics you would like us to cover, as always, email us at outoftimepodcast.outlook.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Out of Time Podcast for updates and see pictures and photos that relate to each week's episode. Thank you for listening today, and we hope you'll join us again next week for some more history, mystery, mythology and murder here on the Out of Time Podcast.